You're listening to the Barry Egan tapes on News Talk. I'm Barry Egan of the Sunday Independent, and my guest is a very special Mike Scott. Mike, thanks for coming in. You're very welcome, Barry. Mike, can I just ask you, how would your life have been different if you hadn't uh, stayed in, in um, Steve Wickham's spare room in 1986? I'd probably have moved to Glasgow or New York. But before you came over, you, you said when you came to Dublin that you felt safe. Why, why, why? Oh, I was tired of being in the music business, Barry. I was tired of pressure. You were groomed for stadiums at that stage, weren't you? Well, I, no, I wouldn't say that, but uh, everybody wanted me to do this or that. How can I explain? I was having my first bit of success, and the record label, the management, the agency, everyone wanted me to do what they thought I should do, and I was constantly under pressure. Uh, and as, as you know, and as the world has come to know, I, I like to do my own thing. And coming to Ireland, I didn't come to Ireland to get away from all that. I came to Ireland for fun, but it also provided me a haven, a sort of undergrowth of the spirit where none of those people could find me. And I liked that. I felt very free in Ireland, suddenly free to create myself to be what I wanted to be. I'd made these three records, the first three Waterboys albums. The Waterboys are Pagan Place and, and This Is The Sea. Yes, yeah. everybody knows them. And, and they, they were good records and I, I loved them very much. But I was ready to go in a different direction. And I'd met Steve Wickham. I wanted to play more acoustic-based music that we could play the same in the studio and live. I was frustrated not being able to reproduce the music that I made on record on the stage. And... Did you, did you feel there was nowhere else to go after the Hole of the Moon, that big sound, yeah, r- studio-created really, sound, like yeah, one of a cinematic? I, I and you took it to... as far as I could. Really, the ultimate was the song This Is The Sea. It's got nine acoustic guitars m- mimicking the, the sound of the ocean. And I love it, but I couldn't go anywhere else. I needed to go somewhere new. And I'd begun to get fascinated by country and western music, Hank Williams, and old gospel music. And suddenly I had this fiddler in the band and our sax player, Anto, switched to mandolin because he found that his mandolin and Steve's fiddle made this beautiful sound together. And we wanted to go in that roots direction. It wasn't just us either. It was a, a, a movement among a lot of bands at that time to try and find rock's roots. We weren't the only ones. And it was a very exciting direction for us. But if I'd stayed in London... I would have had a lot of friction with the label, the agency, and all these people that didn't want me to go that way. What they wanted was This Is The Sea, part two. And is that why, you, you like, the, the guts of four years, Fisherman's Blues, like 86, 87, Wimble Lane, Dublin, 88, Spiddle, mm. and I think you said you, you, you turned your back on stardom <laughs> and you went west and went wild. What was that like? Well, I never turned my back and started. I mean, I came back with Fisherman's Blues. It was our best-selling record up till then. We toured around the world with it. I always wanted to sell as many records as I could. Always happy to for people to buy Waterboys records. But I turned my back on the machinery. I yeah. turned the, the, my back on not being able to do what I wanted to do. I fought to be independent. And I'm independent to this day. I make the records I want to make. But was there any... Because you didn't have a manager... Was there any Actually, com- I did have a manager called Gary Kerfurst. He was a heavyweight American manager. He also managed the Rhythmics, Talking Heads, the Ramones. I liked him a lot as a guy, but as a manager, he just wasn't the right 
flavor for me, as I quickly discovered after signing to him. And I broke with him, but I was still under contract to him for another two and a half years. And one of the reasons that Fisherman's Blues took so long was that I didn't release Fisherman's Blues while I was still under contract to Mr. Kerfurst. Because he could have, I'm not saying he would have, but he could have made life very difficult for the Waterboys. Right. Because I'd read a quote that you said that you, when you spend that long doing a, an album, yeah. it's inevitable that you lose some perspective. Oh, I certainly did, yes. You'd spend ages doing a song and then just, just not use it because there was a, a bit out of tune on a certain bar. Yeah, do you know what the thing was, Barry? I'd learned how to record the band spontaneously. I had no problem creating an atmosphere in a studio, winding up the musicians so that they could play out of their skins and, and plucking inspiration out of the air. That was easy. The difficult bit was knowing what to do with it once I'd got it recorded. And if I had the skills then that I have now, or if, I, if I'd, maybe if I'd been a young musician in the 1960s when everybody played live in the studio, that was how you made records then, I would have known that you allow faults. Like all if, the great records you love were full of, like... Yeah, Stones, De Neil Young, Dylan records, they're all full of mistakes. You hear false vocal entries, but it's out of tune. And that's that's the price you pay for capturing a feeling on a record. But you see, I was a child, a, a, a recording child of the 70s and 80s. Overdubs, perfection, that attention to detail. And I would have these amazing recordings from Windmill Lane of the band playing all together with such spontaneity and feeling. And then I would try to fix all the bits that were wrong. And I, I was killing it. I managed to, to not go too far down that road, but, but I didn't have the skills to just let it be. Yeah. In 85, there was some sessions that were never released that you did with Dylan. It was on the Knocked Out Loaded album for Dylan. What was that like? We, uh, we got an invitation to come down and play with Bob in a studio in London. He'd, he heard the whole he'd of the heard movie. the whole of the moon. And his girlfriend was friendly with Anto's girlfriend. And that's how the word came via the girlfriends. And it was actually an invitation for me to go to the studio. And I I said, look, can my two mates come too, Anton and Steve? So the invitation was extended to the three of us. Was that in Jimmy Page's house? No, it was in a... Uh, I've never in been West to Jimmy London. Page's house. I thought house. it was in Jimmy Page's house in West London. No, it? it wasn't. It was in the Eurythmic studio. Dave Stewart was producing, you see. So it was their studio. It was called The Church because it was a converted church in Crouch End. And we turned up and Bob was there and he was very, very gracious with us. Very, very nice indeed. He wasn't singing, to my great disappointment. He was just playing guitar. And they were working in what I think was probably a, a very odd and, and probably unique way for Dylan. They were recording backing tracks, instrumentals, which he was going to write lyrics for later, which I know is not his usual way of working. And I think some of those tracks did come out later, maybe on Knocked Out Loaded or Down in the Groove, but the, the couple that we played on never came out. And did you have conversations with him about stuff? With Bob, yeah. 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 What did you talk about? Do you know, he was very, very kind to us. He had something nice to say to each of us. I can't remember what he said to Anthony, but he, he had something nice to say to Steve, because you see, when Dylan played at Slane in 84, he had some Irish guests come on stage with him. He had the fella from U2, and he also had Steve Wickham on fiddle. Uh, and he remembered Steve. And he had kind of bit bit tactlessly said to Steve, so how's your band doing? Of course, this was in Tuanua, who yeah. he'd left in under dire circumstances a year before. Uh, and he, he he said to me how much he liked the whole of the moon. Thrilling, 
thrilling. And then then he said to me, have you got any tunes? Have you got any tunes that, that we could maybe use for a song? And I had to think about this. And I did have some tunes, but even for Bob, Bob Dylan, Dylan, I wasn't giving up my tunes. <laughs> yeah. I was keeping them for the Waterboys. But I did have a tune of something that I wasn't thinking of using. So I played it to him at the piano. It was a, it's a reggae track. And he, he stood stood at one shoulder, and Dave Stewart stood at the other shoulder, and I played this reggae tune. Dun, dun, dun. And at the end of it, Bob put his hand gently on my shoulder, and he said, you can you can keep that one. <laughs> Presumably the story that we, you, you, I'm sure you've been asked about it a million times, 85, Hole of the Moon, you refused to do um, Top of the Pops. Mm. And the rumour was that you were, when the record company tracked you down, you were in a room with Bob Dylan, in a hotel room, jamming. Is that... Just it's a wonderful story, and I wish I could tell you it's true, but of course it's not. And it just a few other stories, a few other myths. Is it true you left a guitar in Wimbledon Lane for a month just to soak no. up the vibes? No. If I was going to leave a guitar somewhere to soak up the vibes, it wouldn't have been Wimbledon Lane. I'd have left it on the hill of Tara. Yeah. And is it true, this is Carl Wallinger said it, that in when were you supporting U2? Was it 84, 85? 84. That you stole U2's limo in Chicago and went off to see Prince live we did go and see Prince live in Chicago, but I've no in idea. I've no idea how we got there, and I don't have. Was it a limousine? No, I, well, I don't. I don't remember. I don't remember. And in the spirit of punk, is it true that you spat on um, the, the the physical graffiti house? Uh, oh, that's very York. true. That's fair. That was recently. Yeah, that was recently. That was, was two thousand and twelve. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you're my age, that's recent. Yeah. You did. You did. Was the cover of the album, wasn't it? Well, later, that was the cover of Out of All This Blue, me sitting on the dustbins outside this house on St. Mark's Place, which was also used for the cover of Physical Graffiti. I think it's also seen in the Rolling Stones Waiting for a Friend video. Yeah. But you see, I'm an old punk rocker, and so when, when I went to that Physical, physical Graffiti house, thing? yeah, I had to gob on it. Yeah. Yeah. And another punk, uh, Mick Jones, there was another story I read that after he left the clash, he was about to set up Big Audio Dynamo. He was all into sampling, and you tried to convince him to, to get into the mandolin. Is that true? Oh, not seriously, no. I I hung out with Mick Jones a number of times in London, and I remember he he and I jostling each other about which direction music should go in, and he was all into this technology and sampling stuff. And, and I just met Wickham, and I was into mandolins and rustic instruments, and we were joshing each other that the other should do... Each should do what the other was doing. What age were you when you first like started to get into music? Were you eight or nine? Or uh, when I started to fall in love with music, maybe nine. Yeah, yeah. What age were you when you got? got it was your tenth birthday. You got a guitar. Tenth birthday. Yeah, yeah. And what were you playing along to? Like the the Beatles, um, Stones, Dylan, all that kind of the stuff. Very first things that I learned were "Ride a White Swan," T Rex, "In yeah. the Summertime" by Mungo Jerry, twelve bars. I learned them all in the key of E. Jumping Jack Flash, not a 12-bar, in E. And what you were, was it 14, 15 when you set up your first band? Yeah, my first band was called Karma. It was 1975, so I was 16. And what was Air? Is it Air how you pronounce the word? Air. Yeah, what was that like there in you mean the it? 70s? Well, I, I, I'm from Edinburgh, but, but I spent my teenage years in Air. And Air's a... It's a big enough town, but small compared to Edinburgh. Yeah. Um, was your mum your first roadie? She used to drive you around in the in the hatchback, wasn't it? She did, yeah. Yeah. At her very first gigs, yeah. And did your sense of your imagination come from? Because I remember, you obviously your 
parents split up when you were very young. You used to imagine you, you hadn't seen your father. You didn't know where he'd gone. You used to imagine yeah. that he was vagabonding around the world being some sort of bohemian wanderer. I did indeed, yeah. yes. Is is that when you're a, your your poetic side started? Oh, nothing to do with, with my relationship with my dad. I think uh, I, I just loved rock and roll, Barry, and I loved musicians and singers, and, and I was very touched and transported by Bob Dylan at an early age, at about 11 years old. And and I, my mum had a student called Leonard who used to come come round to the house uh, and he, he was mad into music and he played piano and he used to play with me. And he'd play piano and I'd play guitar and we'd play Dylan songs and he, he played me Blonde on Blonde. And so I, I quickly got mad into Dylan. And I think any sense of the... The troubadour that, that I have began with Dylan. Yeah. And what age were you when you started the fanzine? Is it Jungle Land? Jungle Land. Well, this was 1977. I was 18. That was the, the time of punk rock. Yeah. And I saw a copy of Sniffin' Glue, which famously was the first fanzine in Britain, in the local record shop. And I thought, as, ever, as everybody else who started a fanzine thought, I could do that. And you interviewed The Clash. And who else did you interview? The did Clash. You Smith? I did do Patti Smith, Patti Smith, The Clash, Tom Robinson Band, The Boomtown Rats. I interviewed Bob Geldof in a hotel in Edinburgh, Richard Helen, The Voidoids, The Only Ones, The Rich Kids, Steel Pulse. I can't remember now, but loads of them. Yeah. What, what was the, the Clash like back then? Was it Mick Jones that you obviously interviewed? Yeah. I didn't do a formal interview with The Clash. Now, with Tom Robinson and Bob Geldof, I sat down for 45 minutes and I probably had my tape recorder there. But with The Clash, it was more seat-of-the-pants stuff, find out what hotel they're in after the gig, blag my way into the hotel, meet Mick Jones in the bar, few few questions, more of a chat, really. Yeah. And when did you decide? Was there some sort of a moment that you said, oh, this is what I want to do with my life? Oh, much earlier than that, back when I was 10 or 11. Yeah. What was the epiphany? Was it four or five? You were in some hotel back garden and where the... The garden reached the the the, the, the woodland, and you, and you just felt something touched you or moved you. Well, that wasn't a musical epiphany. Yeah. Gosh, you're going back now. I, when I when my mum and dad were still together, we used to go to a place called Cromer for our summer holidays. Cromer is it's in the Norfolk Broads, on the east coast of England. And one year we went to Overstrand, which is a little town close to Cromer, and there was a hotel in Overstrand. And it had a, a back garden that joined onto a wood. And I remember at the age of four or five going into this back garden and standing there at the wood and feeling an emotion that I'd never felt before. A pull, a pull into, into the spirit of the wood or the spirit of nature. It was a very, very profound feeling. It's the first profound feeling I can ever remember having. And... For a long time, I didn't really know how to process that feeling or what, what to think about it. And then much later, I learned that really it was my... I was being touched by the, the, the natural power of the world, by the power of nature. And still, at moments, I can recall that feeling. Very beautiful feeling. When did you realise, we were able to put it into context, was it when you went to... To, is it to Fintorn? Yeah. No, probably before that, when I was adult. Yeah. Yeah. Was it after that, the, when you started, when you came to Ireland, that you decided that, that music should have a deeper spiritual connection for you? No, long before. Yeah, uh, Music always had a deep spiritual connection for me. You know, I used to fall in love with records. 
Later, I would fall in love with girls. Yeah. But first, I fell in love with records. And I would be, it would be desperate to hear my latest beloved record. Yeah. You know, you may have had the same experience. I just can't breathe until I, I hear Last Night in Soho by Dave D. Dozy Beaky McIntitch again. Or, do you know, later when I would, would get crushes on girls and I wouldn't be able to remember her face. Do you know that feeling? Everybody knows that feeling. It's so tantalising, just stays out of your, your mind's reach. And I used to have that with melodies. When I was nine or ten years old, I would hear a record, fall in love with it, but I wouldn't be able to conjure the melody in my mind until I heard it again and again and again and again and again. What, what yeah. are the melodies that are stuck in your head then? Uh, oh, I have melodies in my head all the time, but they're always changing. Yeah. And what you mentioned Findhorn. Findhorn. Findhorn, sorry. Well, you mentioned Findhorn. Yeah, but I'm curious. You you talked about when you were there, you, um, you had this thing where you, you saw... I was realized to you that intuition was 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 truth was, was truth speaking to you in a sense. That was the universe speaking inside me, yeah. yeah, or God or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. How did that? How did that make you feel? Well, do you know, always in my songwriting, I would would I would get an intuition. Oh, this isn't right. This isn't quite finished yet. This isn't good enough. You could do better on that course. It was like this little voice inside me. It was more like a sort of poke, and I would translate it into words. Uh, and I remember working on Medicine Bow and the This Is The Sea record and I had three verses and three and the three choruses and it was sounding pretty good. But I had this little intuition inside, this little poke saying, no, it's not enough, it's not enough. And that's when I wrote my first ever middle eight yeah. on Medicine Bow. And it was the intuition that made me do it and, and I couldn't couldn't relax until I obeyed the intuition. And then when I went to Findhorn, the spiritual community, and I was doing various workshops and meditations, uh, and the the whole thing at Findorm was learn to find your inner voice, your your intuition. And I realised, hang on, wait a minute, I've been listening to my inner voice for fifteen years while I've been writing songs. I already know this voice. It was a thrilling realisation. Uh, but what, what was this? The music you made in th that place? So I can't pronounce it. Findorm. Findorm. Was it almost like some of the uh, slow train coming kind of thing? Like some of the songs were about Christ, weren't they? Mm, not really, no. I've never written songs about Jesus. No, that wouldn't be my speed at all, no. But in Findhorn... But there was a song with... with the Christ in You. Yes. That's a very different Sorry. thing. That's <laughs> a very different thing. like Monty Python now. <laughs> yeah, well, see, in, in Findhorn and in other spiritual circles, you meet this concept of the Christ. Now, see, Jesus was called Jesus Christ. Yeah. That wasn't his real surname. He was Jesus of Nazareth. Whatever Joseph's surname was, Macubbin or whatever his surname was, that was Jesus' surname. But he was known as Jesus Christ. It was like his office, his spiritual rank. And a Christed being is said to be a being who's achieved unified consciousness. But isn't that what you are seeking in your music, the Christ in you? Mm, I know that's a very pretentious way of putting it, but... I'm just trying to have a good time with music and turn myself on. It's, but the song, I, I've got a song called The Christ in You, that's about about looking into someone's face and seeing the one in all looking back. I'm looking into your face now. Yes, I see you. <laughs> was the whole of the moon, in, I mean, I was listening to it last night, I was thinking, God, could be Sid Barrett, Jimi Hendrix. It's that kind of archetype. It's that yeah. archetype, but it's not about any one of them. Yeah. What did you write it about then? Just that archetype. That's, uh, 
you know, when I write a song, Barry, sometimes I, I really know what it's about and sometimes I don't. Sometimes the song is driving me and that was one of them. And I, I can't say it's about this person or that because it's truly not. There are elements of different people in it. What was going through your head when you wrote Spirit? Mm, this sense that... Oh, man is tethered, spirit yeah. is free, what spirit is a man can be. Man what can what be. age were you when you wrote that? 25. I mean, that's incredible for a 20... Most 25-year-olds can barely string a sentence together. You grew up reading the poets, listening to Dylan, C.S. Lewis, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. C.S. Lewis famously said once that he... No one wrote the books he wanted so to he read. Wrote so he wrote them. He wrote yeah. them. Is that what you do? You write the songs you want to hear? Pretty much, yeah. Couldn't have said it better myself. Yes. How do you think people see you? There was one interview I, I read, Rolling Stone, they, they asked you because of the movement you made after This Is The Sea, you went and did Fisherman Blues, that you were frightened of success. Even oh, though they... Such bollocks. It's so boring. It's so boring to be confronted with that. Even now, 35 years later, oh my God, it's so boring. Even though it went on to be a massive success. Fisherman's Blues? Yeah. Yeah. They'd outsold This Is The Sea. Bollocks. It's just such bollocks. You see, the problem is that when people do things for what seem to be inexplicable reasons, people who haven't had those experiences interpret it through their own filter. Yeah. Do you know, I read a book written about me called Strange Boat. I only read a little bit. A little bit was enough and this guy was talking about this gig that we'd done in Galway. It was a reunion gig with Anto. And he said, Mike Scott told Anto to stay at the back and not play any saxophone. And, you know, it was true that Anto didn't play any saxophone at that gig, and he did stay at the back. I had pled with him, please play your saxophone. Everybody wants to hear your sax. But he hadn't played saxophone live for years, and he wanted to play bass. So he insisted that he play bass. But of course, the guy that's writing about it doesn't know that and he just puts it on me. What's the funniest story you've heard about yourself? Oh, that one, that one you mentioned about Bob Dylan, that's pretty good. Do you see, that's a great story because even though it's not literally true, it's got the ring of truth about it. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to do Top of the Pops because I thought it was fake. I didn't want to mime. I'd much rather be in a hotel room playing music with Bob Dylan. So there's truth in the story, even though it's not a, a factual thing that happened. The Waterboy's um, name came from a, a Lou Reed song, yeah. The Kids from Berlin. You, you've met him. Did you ask him, tell him? Or? I met Lou Reed once very, very briefly. I didn't mention that, but I did thank him for his influence. He was very gracious. Yeah. Very, very... One of, one of the nicest meetings I've ever had with someone I consider a hero. Yeah. Who else would be your heroes? Do you know, I use that word, I hesitate to use it now with musicians because actually they're only my, my heroes in terms of their art. They might not be my heroes personally. Now, someone like Winston Churchill might be more of a hero to me personally because of the way that he dealt with Hitler. But rock musicians and singers... Keith they Richards, can be, you're fond of, aren't you? Keith Richards and Brian Jones. I probably wouldn't want to go on holiday with either of them. Yeah. But as musicians... They're heroes to me because of what they did musically. Also, I must admit, I do admire the Stones for breaking, breaking the stuffiness of society in the 1960s. Was Exile in Main Street the fisherman's blues of its days? Because it, it took so long to, to put together. <laughs> I don't know about that. It's the last great one. 
Brian is my hero at the moment musically. I'm so into Brian Jones. What's the biggest misconception people have about, about Mike Scott? You've already said it, that he ran away from success. Yeah, but you didn't. Yeah. You ran no. into the arms of it. I just went where the music was taking me. Yeah. And is, is, that, like, is that why you've, like, you've bounced all over the world? Is that the, where is the music going to take you next? It's hard to know. I'm working on a record just now, but it's a, it's a weird record. It's a left-field record. It's probably not going to come out under the Waterboy's name. It might be The Water People or something like that. It's all got a lot of comedy tracks. Really? Yeah. Me speaking in a Scottish accent or a Cockney accent. You mean like, kind of like um, Small Faces, Nug Dunn, whatever, you know that album that they did? In yeah, more, more like Dudley, Pete and Duds. More like uh, Derek and Clive. Yeah. Stuff like that. A very f- funny, I th- it makes me laugh anyway. But that won't be a, a normal Waterboys album. If I put that as a Waterboys album, people would be what, what, very what cross. What makes me laugh? Yeah. Father Dougal makes me laugh. Graham Norton singing The Whole of the Moon and Father Ted. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about um, Prince? Did you, did you enjoy? What, what's it? He covered The Whole of the Moon as well. He covered it twice. I've heard one of his versions. I've heard the funk drum and bass version. But I haven't. To, to my great disappointment, I've never heard his piano vocal version. I would love to hear that. He did it at Ronnie Scott's club in 2015. Did you get a lot of people coming up to you and like saying, well, it was because of you that I got into music? Now and then, yeah. People come up to me most days, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. what's it like? I mean, you've been in Dublin a long time. What? What's as an, Are you still an outsider? I don't feel like an outsider here, yeah. no. And what are you like as a dad? Well, of course, I'm the best dad in the world, just like every other dad. But the fear is, was there not a fear in you that your dad, if you don't mind me saying, it probably wasn't the best dad in the world? It wasn't the best dad in the world to me, although after I tracked him down, he was a very good dad. What was it like when you knocked on the door? I know he wasn't there. He mm. Bracing to go and knock on my dad's door after not seeing him for 20 years. Yes, of course. In fact, it was longer than, longer, was 25, 30 years. 98. And you spent years like going, tra- trying to track him down? Ah, uh, not so long. Going through a, my, year, my a year or so. Yeah. 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 See, my, my dad left home when I was 10 years old and we lost touch with him. And I always used to wonder, where is my dad? What's, what's he up to? What did your mother tell you? Mm, well, that's very personal. Uh, but as to where he was, she didn't know where he was. And after the age of 16, you see, he didn't have to pay any upkeep. So we lost all sense of where he was. How did, what was the emotional effect on you? Well, that's very difficult, very difficult to answer. I'll try and answer it for you. But of course, I've nothing to compare it to. I do have a sense, I do have a memory of the time when my parents were still together. And there's a certain quality or flavour to those memories that's different from the memories after they split. But very hard to describe. What were you like then, as a boy? Probably much the same as now. Really? Yeah. Mad into stuff. Football first. Who did you follow? Uh, Rangers and Hearts. And music seemed to have a significance then, and and obviously books. Was Was there a first time you remember hearing the Beatles? I remember hearing She Loves You, yeah, yeah. when I was four or five years old. But I don't know if it was 
on a TV show or the radio. Or my, my parents had the records, so maybe I heard them playing it. Yeah. What was the first song you wrote? Lyrics without a, a tune, probably. Poetry. Always song lyrics, not so much poetry. I used to write poetry at school in the English class. What kind of stuff were you influenced by? I wasn't influenced by anything. Really? Just, just childish what, what? poems. I used to like funny poems. I used to like Spike Milligan. Yeah. I, I went to my daughter's school. They wanted me to, to talk to the, the, the children about clarity and how to read poetry out loud. And they had three of the children reading, and two of them read Spike Milligan poems. And I thought, because I used to read Spike Milligan poems. And in fact, I said, look, I can read. I put my hand up like, like one of the kids. I said, I can read it. And I read a Spike Milligan poem that I remember from, from when I was a kid. Can you remember I can, you want me to yeah. do it now? Yeah. Today I saw a little worm wriggling on his belly. Perhaps he'd like to come inside and see what's on the telly. <laughs> what about telly growing up? Did, was there stuff that you remember? Yes, of course. Top of the Pops. Yeah. I thought you didn't like the Top of the Pops. I didn't want to mime on Top of the Pops, yeah. but when I was an eight-year-old watching it, I wasn't thinking about any of that. Yeah. Because no, I remember, the, I think the reason you said at the time, or maybe subsequent, was because... The Clash didn't want to be on top of the pops and you didn't want to do stuff like that and it would have just prolonged the... Yeah. This. Well, you know, the, the time when... when I, I've been on top of the pops once, it was in 1993 with Glastonbury Song, but at the time of the Hole of the Moon that everybody loves to talk about me not going on top of the pops, we actually got invited to play top of the pops. We were on tour in America. We couldn't do it. If we'd been in the UK, would I have done it? Maybe I would have done it. Maybe I would have gone on and mimed. We don't know. But the world likes to pretend that Mike Scott refused to do Top of the Pops because it's a good story. And Top of the Pops in the 1980s was very different from Top of the Pops in the 1960s. It was a different energy. And in the 1980s, punk had happened and a lot of changes had happened in music. And... The miming shallowness of Top of the Pops, I felt in the 80s, was a disgrace. And I wasn't the only artist to feel that. Whereas Top of the Pops in the 60s was a much more innocent time. Yeah, it's true. Tell me about the, the, the um, I was curious about the Witch's Spell book. Where did that come from? You mean the, my songwriting book? Yeah. Yeah. I used to write on sheets of paper, Barry, or little, I used to use little Basil and Bond notebooks. Do you remember those? No. They were for writing letters. You'd buy them in stationery shops. And and then one day I was in a, a shop in New York, a mystical bookshop in New York, and I saw these huge, big, black-bound books. And I lifted one off the shelf and I opened it and all the pages were blank. And I asked the bloke in the shop, what's this? And he said, it's a book of spells. You write your spells in it. Well, I didn't have any spells, but I had songs. So I bought one and I wrote all my songs in it. All the songs I was working on at the time, which is a lot of songs too. And they all went in this book, which I still have. In fact, I filled it and bought another one. The songs weren't any better because they were on this. Well, I think they were, Barry. <laughs> but I'll tell you why. I not, was hoping for Alexander Crowley and Jimmy Page. Oh, and God, no. Oh, God, no. No, that, I, again, that wouldn't be my speed at all. But wasn't there a story that, or maybe you were just winding the journalist up, that you thought that Bono, you assumed that, that Bono thought you were some sort of a cultist? Because oh, I think, I think that's what he thought, yeah. Why? Mm, 
because I clearly wasn't coming from the same school as him. And I, I always thought that he thought I was some kind of weird occultist with my songs about Strange Boat, but my denials that I was a Christian. So a Christian like him you know, probably puts me down as an occultist. <laughs> but that doesn't mean I am one. He owns this town, so be careful. I'm joking. Um, but, like, are you... What, what do you believe in? I believe that there's one consciousness in the universe, and we are all little bits of it walking around, and that in our moments of, of great insight or great emotion or transcendence, we get a glimpse of that truth. And at those moments, we feel love and we feel united with everybody. And those are great moments. And one of those moments can keep me going for 10 years. Really? Yeah. The memory of such a moment. I've had some in my life. I suspect you have too. Could you describe one of those moments? Well, I have moments like that with my children. Yeah. Quite regularly. The kind of um, God can be in the ordinary, whatever that means. Absolutely. Yeah. And if God's not in the ordinary, what use is it? There's not going to be a thunderbolt. No. Mike, come out no. of there. That's right. <laughs> It doesn't happen like that. Yeah. So it, being in this mad business called the music business, how do you keep your f compass working? Well, no, I just learned over the years how to live a, a semi-normal life and have a, a, a strange job as an artist. I've learned how to blend them. And you, you take the blows. It's not always going to be smooth sailing. And sometimes the wind blows the wrong way and you get knocked overboard and you just have to get back on the fucking boat. And that's it. That's all there is to it. Okay, Mike, thanks for coming in. It was great talking to you. You're welcome, Barry. That was a roller coaster, as always. <laughs>